All right, take your Bibles and turn to James chapter 2. James chapter 2. I'm going to direct your attention to verse 14. James chapter 2 and verse 14. We'll start reading there, so follow along. What doth it profit, my brethren, though a man say he hath faith and have not works? Can faith save him? If a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you say to them, Depart in peace, be ye warmed and filled, notwithstanding ye give them not those things which are needful to the body, what doth it profit? Even so, faith, if it hath not works, is dead, being alone." Yea, a man may say, Thou hast faith, and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works, and I will show thee my faith by my works. Thou believest that there is one God, thou doest well. The devils also believe and tremble. But wilt thou know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he had offered Isaac his son upon the altar? Seest thou how faith wrought with his works? And by works was faith made perfect. And the scripture was fulfilled, which saith, Abraham believed God, and it was imputed unto him for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. Ye see then how that by works a man is justified, and not by faith only. Likewise also was not Rahab the harlot justified by works, when she had received the messengers, and had sent them out another way. For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works, is dead also. I want to talk to you this afternoon about profession or possession. Profession or possession. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, would you help us with your word again this afternoon and use it to accomplish your will and hearts. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This passage has been labeled a problem passage by some because of the great debate that has gone over, has gone about over the centuries related to verse 14 and even verse 18. Verse 14, what doth it profit my brethren, though a man say he hath faith and have not works? Can faith save him? Verse 18, a man may say thou hast faith and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works and I will show thee my faith by my works. The, the idea or the, even the thesis of the whole passage is actually verse 14 that says, What doth it profit my brethren, though a man uh, may say he hath faith and have not works, can faith save him? And that word can there in that verse, it means to be capable, it means to be strong, be powerful. And, and what James is doing here is he's comparing a person's profession of faith without actions to something that is worthless, like a person's words. A person's words are worthless. If if someone has the ability to help somebody in need, but they don't do it, what profit is it? And he he relates that in the very next verse, in verse 15. Uh, you, You say that you have faith, you say that you're saved, but if there's nothing to go along with it, and there's nothing to back it up, or evidence of that, then, then what profit is it? And it's the same thing as if a brother or sister is naked and destitute and food, and you're like, be warmed and filled, I love it, I love you, have a good day. 
but you don't do something to give them the need of the body, your love or the words that you say are meaningless. They're worthless words. And so that's what James is doing. And, he's, and the idea behind this is if you're saved, your life is going to show it. If you're truly saved, there's going to be evidence or work in your life that verifies you really are. So look at verses 15 through 17 here, where James says, Depart in peace, be you warmed and filled. And James is giving us an example of a classic farewell here. He says, if a brother or a sister be naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you say to them, depart in peace, be ye warmed and filled, notwithstanding you give them not those things which are needful to the body, what doth it profit? Even so faith, if it hath not works, is dead being alone. And so James is giving us this classic example of a farewell, like, you know, you might say goodbye to another person. You might say, uh, you know, hope you have God's peace in your life. I'll, I'll pray for you, be warmed and filled, and so on. But those words don't mean anything. It's not enough just to wish good things for people. If you have the ability to help them, helping them is what proves what you're saying is true, that you actually do love them. Does that make sense? And the lesson in that is that real faith has compassion. Real faith is selfless. And there's a, there's a story that's told of a man who was, quote, a missionary. His name was Doug Nichols. But he was part of Operation Mobilization in India in the 60s, 1960s. And... He was serving, ministering over there, but he ended up getting tuberculosis. And tuberculosis forced him into what they called a sanitarium for several months where other people uh, who had tuberculosis were. And he talks about how he didn't speak the language, but while he was there, he tried to give out Christian literature written in their language he tried to give it to patients. He tried to give it to doctors and to nurses and, and so on. But everybody politely refused. They didn't want what he had to, to give or share. And he says that he sensed that many were not happy about this rich white American uh, who, you know, was in this government-run hospital or sanitarium where all these poor people were. And, of course, he mentions how they thought that anybody who was an American was rich, of course. And they didn't realize that he was without money. He was just as broke as maybe they were. But he writes about this, and he says, that, he says the first few nights that he was there, he woke up about 2 o'clock in the morning coughing. And one morning during his coughing spell, he noticed that there was this older and sicker patient that was across the aisle from him who was trying to get up out of bed. And he would sit up on the edge of bed and he would try to stand, but in his weakness he would fall back into the bed. And he states how he didn't understand what exactly this older man was trying to do. And he finally fell back into exhaustion on his bed and then he heard him crying softly. The next morning... He realized what the man had been trying to do. He'd been trying to get up 
so he could walk to the bathroom. Now, he goes on to say that the stench in that ward was awful. Other patients would yell insults at the old man. Angry nurses would move him around roughly from side to side as they cleaned up the mess. One nurse even slapped him, and the old man curled up into a ball and he wept. The next night, he says that he woke up again coughing in the middle of the night, and he noticed that the same man across the aisle was sitting up again, and he was trying to stand. And like the night before, he fell back into his bed exhausted and whimpering. He thought to himself, man, I don't like bad smells. I don't want to get involved in this. But there was something that was compelling him. And so he got out of bed and he went over to the old man. When he touched the old man's shoulders, the man's eyes opened wide with fear, fearing that someone was going to hit him again. Instead of that, he just smiled at him. He put his arms underneath him. He picked him up. He was very light due to the old age and his advanced tuberculosis. And Doug says that he carried him to the washroom, which was just as filthy as everything else, this small room with a hole in the floor. And he says, I stood behind the old man with my arms under his armpits as he took care of himself. After he finished, I picked him back up and I carried him back to his bed And as I laid him down in his bed, he reached up and he kissed me on the cheek. He smiled and he said something I couldn't understand. The next morning, another patient woke me and he handed me a steaming cup of tea. He motioned with his hands that he wanted a tract, some of the materials that I was trying to hand out. As the sun rose, other patients approached and indicated they also wanted these booklets that I had tried to distribute before. Throughout the day, nurses and interns and doctors asked for literature. Weeks later, there was an evangelist who spoke the language who came and he visited me. And as he talked to others, he discovered that several had put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ as Savior as a result of reading this literature. Doug goes on to say, What did it take to finally reach these people with the gospel? It wasn't health. It wasn't the ability to speak their language. It wasn't persuasive talk. I simply took a man to the bathroom. And the idea is, is that his action carried on by the love of Christ, was the thing that proved he was genuine, which began to open up people's hearts and minds to the truth. C.S. Lewis said, I am often, I believe, praying for others when I should be doing things for others. It's so much easier to pray for a person than to go see a person. Interesting thought. James says that faith without works is dead. The word dead is a Greek word that means it's breathed, it's last, it's departed, it's destitute of power. Faith without works is dead. And if a person says they have faith, but there's no accompanying good works 
that goes along with it, then James is saying your faith is not a genuine faith. Now look at verse 18. He says, Yea, a man may say, Thou hast faith, and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works, and I will show thee my faith by my works. The word show me means to expose to the eyes. It means to give evidence or proof. And James is clearly talking about the issue of faith, but he's not talking about works as a way to salvation. He's talking about works as a proof of salvation. He says in verse 19, Thou believest that there is one God, thou doest well. The devils also believe and tremble. You say you believe in God? Okay, great. You know what? The devils believe in God too. Where's the proof that you actually do? He gets down to verse 21 and he says, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son upon the altar? Interesting thought here. James is using Abraham as an example of being justified by works where Paul uses Abraham as an example of one being justified by faith. You notice that? What's the difference? What's he talking about here? Well, James is obviously referring to the story in Genesis chapter 22 where God asked Abraham to sacrifice his only son Isaac. Go to Genesis 22. Keep your place here and go to Genesis 22. In verse 10, And Abraham stretched forth his hand and took the knife to slay his son. And the angel of the Lord called unto him out of heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here am I. And he said, Lay not thine hand upon the lad, neither do thou anything unto him. For now I know that thou fearest God, seeing that thou hast not withheld thy son, thine only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him, a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the stead of his son. And Abraham called the name of the place Jehovah-Jireh, as it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord, it shall be seen. And the angel of the Lord called unto Abraham out of heaven the second time and said, By myself I have sworn, saith the Lord, for because thou hast done this thing, and hast not withheld thy son, thine only son, that in blessing I will bless thee, and in multiplying I will multiply thy seed as the stars of heaven, and as the sand which is upon the seashore. And thy seed shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because thou hast obeyed my voice. Now, why does James use Abraham as an example of being justified by works? Abraham's faith in God was proven because he was willing to do the hard thing, the hard thing of sacrificing his only son Isaac. His faith was justified, and God knew that Abraham believed. Now, God repeats the promise to Abraham again that through his seed all the nations of the earth would be blessed, that through his seed it would, they would be multiplied as the sands of the sea. 
And again, it's interesting that James uses Abraham as an example of a person being justified by works when Paul uses Abraham as an example of a person being justified by faith. And you can read about that in Romans chapter 4, where Paul says the opposite thing. But in Romans chapter 4, Paul is talking about how we as people are justified before God by receiving our salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. What James is talking about, he's talking about our faith is justified or branded as genuine in the eyes of men by producing good works. The justification is on two different planes. We're justified by faith in the eyes of God. But what is it that proves that we really are true believers to the world? It's the works that we produce. And the Bible says, and Jesus said, that people would know that you're my disciples because of the life that you live. Now, go to verse 22. Back in James chapter 2, go to verse 22. He says here, Seest thou how faith wrought with his works, and by works was faith made perfect? The word wrought with, it's the Greek word synergio. It's where we get our English word synergy from. It simply means this. It means to work together. It means to help in work. It means to partner in labor. It means to put forth power together and thereby to assist. So in other words, Abraham's faith was a partner with his works. Abraham didn't just sit around saying, I believe God. His genuine faith in God caused him to obey and thereby proving that he actually did believe God's promise. He got up. He took his son. He took his son to Mount Moriah there to sacrifice him. Why did he do that? Because he actually believed the promise of God. And because I believe the promise of God, whether or not God tells me to sacrifice my son, I know that God is able and will raise him from the dead and God will perform his promise. And the, and the proof of my faith is that I'm obeying what he's telling me to do. Does that make sense? That verified or justified his faith. The words made perfect, it means to complete. It means to carry through completely, to accomplish, to finish, to bring to an end, to add what is yet wanting in order to render it a thing that is full. Abraham's faith was brought to its highest peak through his actions. His actions were the verification that his faith was genuine. Now look at verse 23. And the scripture was fulfilled, which said, Abraham believed God, and it was imputed unto him for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. The word fulfilled there, it means to render full, to complete, to make complete in every particular way to accomplish. Long before Abraham was asked to sacrifice Isaac, God made him a promise. In Genesis chapter 15, in verse 5 and 6, 
Go there with me. Just keep your place here again. But look at Genesis chapter 15. Genesis 15, verse 5, And he brought him forth abroad and said, Look now toward heaven, and tell the stars if thou be able to number them. And he said unto him, So shall thy seed be. And he believed in the Lord, and he counted it to him for righteousness. God made this promise to Abraham long before Isaac ever came on the scene. It wasn't until many, many years later that Isaac would even be born. And then it was many years after that when God asked Abraham to offer Isaac his son. But how could Abraham sacrifice this son when he was to be the one through whom God would give him this promise that he would make his offspring like the stars of heaven? How could Abraham go and do that when God said it's this offspring and this son through whom the world is going to be blessed? Well, look in Hebrews chapter 11 with me. Hebrews chapter 11. And notice verse 17. By faith, Abraham, when he was tried, offered up Isaac, and he that had received the promise offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said that in Isaac shall thy seed be called, accounting that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, from whence also he received him in a figure. Why was Abraham able to do this? Because he believed God, and he believed that if this is what God wanted, God was even able to raise him from the dead to fulfill his promise. Abraham had faith in God. His faith was expressed in his obedience in offering up his son. He could offer up Isaac because he trusted that God was able to keep his promise, even if it meant raising him from the dead. His act of sacrifice was the demonstration of his total trust in God. It was the final maturing of his faith. Now go to James 2 again and look at verse 24. Ye see then how that by works a man is justified and not by faith only. The word justified here, it means to render. It means to show or regard as just. Again, note this, that James is not saying that a person is made right with God by their works. What he is saying is that you can't possibly be a born-again believer and have genuine faith in the Lord and not have works that accompany that salvation. The works don't save you, but they prove that you have genuine faith in the Lord. In whose eyes, though? Is it in the eyes of God? No, God sees the heart. God knows whether or not it's true and genuine. God looks on the heart and knows what's there. So it's not proving it to God. This is horizontal justification that he's talking about. It means in the eyes of men, it's justifying the genuineness of your faith in the eyes of others. 
Your li- and, and here's the point. Here is the point. Your life and the fruit it produces verifies whether or not you have genuine salvation. It proves it to other people. Now, verse 25 says, Likewise also was not Rahab the harlot justified by works when she had received the messengers and had sent them out another way? Of course, that's talking about Joshua chapter 2, where Joshua sent the spies ahead to check out the city of Jericho. Those spies encountered this woman Rahab who took them in, who hid them. She had faith, she believed in their God, and as a result, she took care of those spies. And then James makes the point at the end. These were illustrations. And he says, For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. Now here's the application. The application is this. Action always proves the reality. Action proves the reality of your faith. Sometimes, listen, sometimes faith and the words you say that I have faith isn't all that special until you have to prove it. You prove it by acting on it. There was a story about a man named Blondin who was a tightrope walker. I've used this illustration before. And, he, and the story goes about this tightrope walker in the 1800s who was a Frenchman. And the story is, goes that when he was five years old, he was sent to this place I can't really pronounce in Lyon. And after six months of training as an acrobat, he made his first public appearance as the Little Wonder. That was his name. He developed his skills as a tightrope walker under the guidance of P.T. Barnum of Barnum and Bailey Circus. He became known as the Great Blondin. In 1859, he announced that he would do the most amazing of all feats. He would cross Niagara Falls on a tightrope. 1,100 feet long was the walk, 160 feet above the water. No supports, no ropes. On June 30th, 1859, the tightrope was put in position, and at 5 o'clock in the afternoon, Blondin started the trip that was to make history. He stopped in the middle. He lowered a rope down to the maid of the mist, pulled up a bottle of water, and sat down while he refreshed himself. He began his ascent toward the Canadian shore. He paused. He steadied the balancing pole and suddenly executed a back somersault on the tightrope. The crowd screamed. There was a woman in the crowd who fainted. Those near to the rope cried out and begged him to come in. He crossed the falls several times, actually, each time making it more and more difficult. He crossed the rope on a bicycle. He crossed the rope walking blindfolded. He crossed the rope pushing a wheelbarrow, stopping to cook an omelet in the center, and making the trip with his hands and his feet manacled. 
His most daring crossing came when he announced that he would carry a man across with him on his back. One man agreed to let him do it. It was his manager, Harry Colcourt. He performed this feat privately for both the Prince of Wales and King Edward VII. He repeated the stunt of carrying a man on his back, and he offered to carry the prince himself. But he declined. (laughs) (laughs) The point is, is that sometimes the words that you say, they can sound good, but until you're actually tested to prove it, they don't mean anything. And over and over and over again, James says, if a man may say, if a man may say, listen, here's the point of it all. You can say that you're saved all you want, but your words will never prove that you're a child of God. Your life and your actions is what proves it. Faith is spiritual justification before God. Works is practical justification before men. You know what? We can be a member of a scriptural New Testament church. We can say that we're saved. We believe in God. We can say that we're true Christians and we love God. But you know, when it comes time to actually serving at the church, when it comes time to investing into the lives of other people, when it comes time to anything else, listen, your life shows what you are. Your words mean nothing. Oh, I'm saved, I'm saved, except except the whole part of your life is only live for self. The the rest of your life has nothing to do with the things of God. It doesn't seem like you want to pray, you want to read your Bible, that you even want to be around. You're going to come to church because that's what faithful Christians do. But what about the rest of your life? Words mean nothing. And guess what? You're not fooling anybody. People see. People know. They know the difference between one who really loves God and one who just talks a talk but doesn't walk the walk. God knows more importantly. God knows. James says you can say you have faith all you want. But I'll prove my faith by my life. Because God changed my life. God made me different. He made me a new creation in Him. And when He did, all my desires changed. Everything about me changed. And I don't want to do anything except for love God. Am I perfect at that? No way. But I know the Lord helps me. And I know in my heart that that's what I want to do. And God enables me. People, oh yeah, I'm saved, I'm saved. But there's just no evidence in their life at all that they actually love God. Because their life is lived for themselves. Are you saved? Does your life prove it? Or does your life actually prove something else? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray, Lord, that you just take these thoughts and
these words. And Lord, I pray that there would be a heart to truly examine ourselves. Prove your own selves, whether you be in the faith. Know ye not that the Spirit of God lives in you, except ye be reprobates. We always ought to have the heart attitude, Lord, try me, show me. What does my life prove? What does it show? Words mean nothing. And Lord, I pray that not only in the eyes of men in the church, people in the church, but in the eyes of the world, that people would see and know the genuineness of our faith. They're not going to believe our words. They're going to look for it in our life. And does it do any good to tell the neighbor, Oh, I love you. Be warmed and filled when they have a need and we have the ability to help, but we don't. Are they actually going to believe our words? What shows, what shows it? What proves it? What justifies it? And it's the same with our faith. And Lord, I pray that we would have the heart to be obedient, like Abraham. His genuineness and his faith in the Lord was demonstrated. It was proved in the fact that he obeyed God in doing the impossible or the hard thing. Knowing that God was able. And I trust you. So Lord, I pray that our lives would demonstrate genuineness. And Father, that we could be the kind of testimony that accurately represents and reflects Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen.